Lord, thank you for your word as we have prayed consistently through this series. We need your help to hear, to understand, and to interpret. You say that the grass, fade, uh, the, the grass withers and the flower fades, but your word endures forever. We come now to this enduring word that has been a blessing to your people for, for generations, for millennia. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would do what you do now. Open our eyes in spite of our frailties in communicating and hearing and break us down and make us new all over again. In Jesus' name, amen. As been mentioned a couple times, this is Palm Sunday. Sometimes we spend more time on Palm Sunday. We're not this year, but it is the Sunday that commemorates Jesus riding into Jerusalem in the, that last week on a donkey a week that begins with him riding into, as a, on a donkey and it ends with him on a cross and then is culminated in his resurrection. But that one of the things that donkey signifies is humility and service. Jesus came to serve a people. It's quite possible about that same time that Pilate was riding in from the other side of Jerusalem on a white steed signifying power. Jesus, who actually has power, submits that to create a people. He rides in as a don- on a donkey in humility. Another picture of humility and self-sacrifice of Jesus in the book of Revelation is the Lamb. And the very last verse of this passage talks about those written in the Lamb's book of life. So that idea, the donkey and the Lamb are bookending what we're doing today, that Jesus serves us. He sacrifices for us to create a people that is called, in this passage, a bride. The people of God are pictured as a bride. Now, one of the privileges, usually the privilege, of my job is I get to do weddings. They've usually been pretty good. One of the, the first wedding I did, I had to have a bouncer because the, the mother who was mentally ill objected during our rehearsal. But uh, she was very calm during the service, so I was very thankful for that. Very, very first wedding at like age 22. Um, But what happened, I've done dozens of weddings, and most of them are similar in that the night before, we have a rehearsal, a walkthrough, the bridal parties are there, and the bride is there, and she's usually in some form of street clothes, but she's nervous, right? She's got a thousand things on her mind of all these details that she is not really responsible for, but she really feels responsible for and wants to make sure they go right, and I understand that, and she's hurried and harried and doesn't have all the makeup on. There's all these things going on. She's in her normal condition the night before at the rehearsal. Then sometime the next day, I have the privilege of saying something like this. Would you please stand? for the bride and the back door of the church opens or the wedding venue opens and there is this same woman who the night before was in street clothes and no makeup and hurried and harried and a thousand things in her mind and nervous and there she is now she might still be nervous I get that but she's radiant she's not in a hurry in fact we're saying don't go too fast down the aisle right don't beat the music down the aisle there she is She's beautiful. I've, never, I've done lots of weddings. I've never seen a bride who wasn't radiant. Whatever the environment, however bad the rehearsal went, the bride is always radiant. And when people stand, normally what I do, I have the best view in the house, right? Even the groom is sometimes, you know, if the aisles are too narrow, he can't quite see. I get to see. And then I often take a half step to the right just to look at the groom as he sees his bride for the first time. And he's always delighted. This is what the picture, this is what we have in Revelation 21. The bride is the church. And the very delighted groom is Jesus Christ himself. These are the images God gives us in the book of Revelation. We are at the end of the book of Revelation. Next week is our last sermon. This has been a five-month journey going through every chapter of the book of Revelation where we've been... seeing these vibrant and sometimes bizarre, let's face it, images that are meant to communicate depth realities, multifaceted realities to engage the imagination of the people of God for ages now so that we would be strong together in a type of resilient, joyful faith. 
And in, in those images, we see all kinds of uh, dynamics that have made themselves present in, in our history, dynamics of this conflict between sin and grace, between the redemptive grace of Jesus and evil in our world, and sometimes the sin and evil inside of us, down through the ages. This passage actually takes us beyond the end of time, that we would call time. It's, this is after Christ returns. This is a picture of the way it will be, but is not yet. And if you remember what's happening, I put this on the back of your insert here, the, my, you might call the rhetorical structure of Revelation. This is why we're, in, this is how, this is the, the vibe of the second half of the book. The woman is presented, the woman is the faithful people of God on earth, and she is protected by God as three antagonists come on the scene. One is the dragon, Satan. He comes on the scene to persecute and pursue and destroy the woman. That's Revelation 12. The dragon wants to destroy the people of God because he can't get to Jesus. He'll he'll try to get to Jesus' people. And then in Revelation 13, he calls into his employment two beasts, the beast of the sea and the beast of the earth, these earthly powers that he employs in the oppression and suppression of God's people. And then those earthly powers together create a culture called Babylon or the prostitute, which is the environment that woos God people away. So three antagonists come on the scene that persecute and pursue and chase after God's people. And then one by one, the Lord judges those antagonists. First in Revelation 17 and 18, the Babylon is taken out. Then in Revelation 19, the beast is taken out. And then Revelation 20, last week Taylor showed us that the dragon, the Satan is taken out. And now in Revelation 21, what's left is the woman, but no longer on earth. This is the woman in heaven. She's no longer called a woman. She's called a bride, the bride of Christ. And as Revelation often does, it gives multiple images for the same things. So in this passage, you know, they kind of overlap and interlock and they're roughly equal. The bride is also pictured as a city. You're like, that's completely confusing. Like, I know, I didn't write it, but like, I'm just telling you what's here, right? The, the bride, the church is pictured as a bride, like, wow, that's petty. Like, yes, and also a city. Whoa, what? And together. Okay, like, but it makes it hard to read, but you just need to know that that's there as you read through it. It's blending two images of bride and city together, and this is actually the completion of a theme that's been running through Scripture. The city of God. We are made for a city. Now, if you're not an urban dweller, you don't like cities, don't worry. Next chapter, we're going to see it's a garden city. Right? So it's very lush, green garden city. It's like city and rural together. If you look on the back, though, there's a couple of ways this is traced through Scripture. In Hebrews 11 and 12, the one we typically call the father of the faith, Abraham, from Revelation, Genesis 12. This is the commentary on what Abraham was actually doing. In Hebrews 11, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place where he was to receive an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder was God. So Abraham, in his journeys, was really, whether he knew it or not, maybe, I don't know, was really, the author of Hebrews says, he was seeking a city. He wasn't home yet. He was seeking a city, but not a human city, a city whose designer and builder was God himself. That comes to be known in Hebrews as the heavenly Jerusalem or the new city. What about anybody else besides Abraham? Well, Hebrews 12, the very next chapter, talks about God's people, those who are followers of Christ and in Christ, Hebrews 12. You, you all, if you're in Christ, this is you, this is me. You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and party clothes and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. So what this is saying is somehow in Christ, you have come to the city of New Jerusalem or heavenly, heavenly Jerusalem. And we say, well, how would... How have we come to that city? We live in Indianapolis or surrounding suburbs. How have we come to this city of heavenly Jerusalem? Philippians 3 answers that. That's the next passage down. Paul writes, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So what is, if you're in Christ, this is true of you. 
you are a sojourner and a resident alien here. Your true citizenship is in heaven, in the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem. And we are in this, that's why the Bible pictures this life as a sojourn. It is as if we are in a foreign country until we reach our home country or our home city. Or, as we'll see, if that home city comes to us, just in the next chapter, but, or the next, in, in Revelation 21. The idea here is that in Christ, the very central idea to understanding the New Testament especially, and your life as a Christian, in Christ, we are already members or citizens of this city. That's already true reality, though we are not yet fully united to it in our experience. We are already members, though we're not yet united to it in our full experience. We are already members of the heavenly city, though we don't experience it fully yet. And that rich concept of already, not yet, explains a whole lot about our life. We're already in Christ. We have the Holy Spirit. We sense God's presence sometimes, but not yet fully. But one day it will be full. We are already in a community. We have some good relationships, but sometimes they're strained and fractured and broken. We don't yet experience the fullness of relationship as it will be. Already, not yet. We have this experience often. Um, March 21st was the first day of spring. Really and truly, it really was. It doesn't matter if you don't like it. It doesn't matter if you don't feel like it's spring. It, it was spring, March 21st. March 21st was really and truly the first day of spring. But I don't remember. But let's say March 21st was 17 degrees and snowing, which in Indiana, it's probably possible. Though March 21st was really the first day of spring, it perhaps in that case would not be fully present to our experience. It was already, but not yet. March 22nd, it could be 17 degrees and sleeting. It's still already spring, but not yet fully spring. It's already, but the fullness is coming. That's the situation in which we live. In Christ, there's an already aspect of our life. We're already united to Jesus. We're already secured in the future. It's like the future's reached back and grabbed us with an unbreakable chain, which is true, and that unbreakable chain is called the Holy Spirit of the living God. That's an already true reality about us. It cannot be changed. It will never be changed. But not yet do we experience the fullness of that in our life. But one day we will. Already, not yet. The, the big idea of what we're driving at this passage is that life in, in Christ is, a, is life in a new city that is already real because of Jesus, but not yet fully present to our experience. Life in Christ is a new city that is already real, but not yet fully present. And in this passage, I know we're not even to the passage yet, I'm just all set up, there are three significant concepts that are wound together like a three-stranded rope that are wound, wound around each other. And that this city is a place, it is a presence, the presence of God, and it is a people, the people of God. It is a place, it is a presence, the presence of God, and it is a people. Now, I'm breaking all the rules of preaching here and what, even what I teach in a preaching class, but um, we've wanted to make Revelation accessible. So we've been preaching these entire chapters at a time. Nobody should do that, right? That's like it's too much. It's too much visual imagery. The sermons have been kind of long. Sorry, they'll get shorter in the next ser- series. Um, and so I have this choice of like, do I want to draw out each concept and like pull that three-strand rope apart and here's, here's a place, then here's a presence, and here's a people, or just take it as the, as the passage shows it, which is all wrapped together. I've chosen the latter because a rope is kind of supposed to stay together, so we're going to do that. We're going to walk through the passage, but it does mean there's a lot of back and forth, people, presence, place, all that kind of stuff. And all of these things are what we would call this already not yet reality. Yeah, if you want to sound educated, theologically, you would call this inaugurated eschatology. 
you, you'd say, well, I don't think I've ever read that before. Yeah, because nobody really talks that way except egg-headed theologians, right? Like Taylor. Like, anyway, inaugurated, <laughs> it's true, inaugurated eschatology, right? That means the end has already begun. It's been inaugurated in the present. It's already real, but it's not yet fulfilled, but it's coming. So we taste the end right now, really, but not yet fully. Uh, there is a heaven reality, heavenly reality coming, but, but now, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we should press into that. We should try to embody that. We can move toward this now. Even though it is faltering as we do so, it is haphazard, it's incomplete, we're limping, you know, we're flawed and always recorrecting, we do remember that Jesus teaches us to pray this way, our Father who's in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So what we're about to say, see, in heaven, we should say, you know what, even though it's incomplete, even though it's faltering, even though we don't very, do a very good job, we should lean into it and see what we can com- complete and be, present on this earth that is reflected in heaven, knowing that one day the Lord will return and renew all things. So let's look at Revelation 21. We will spend far more time in the first half of this passage than the last half. I didn't want to leave the last half off, but here we go. As we have done a few times in this series, I want to invite you to read the bold. I'll read the regular text. You read the bold, and we will just kind of go back and forth as we move through this text. Here we go, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So here we have the concepts of place and people together. First of all, this is a place. What is this place? Right where we are. It's a little confusing because we have the like new heaven and new earth, and we think, oh, that mean, does that mean like brand new God starts over? No. This is the Greek word kainos, which means renewed, not neos, which would mean brand new. It is a renewal and restoration of all things. Theologians will talk about this earth being restored back to and beyond its original created glory. This earth that we live on right now. And you might say, I can't imagine this earth being so good that I want to live on it forever. I can't imagine that. Well, 1 Corinthians says, you're correct. It is not entered into the mind of man what God has prepared. That's what it says. You can't imagine it. Nobody can imagine it. But we're told that God will return. That the, this, the, the, in the return, there will be a new heaven and a, a renewed heaven and a renewed earth. It is very, our permanent existence in some ways is very earthly, physical. Uh, it, so the picture here is that the future is not this disembodied, spiritual-only existence floating somewhere. It's actually, in some way, beyond our imagination, a very earthly and earthy existence in full glory with some significant connection with our life now, but better in ways that we cannot yet imagine. Sometimes in church history, people have said, look, this world is not my home. I'm just passing through. I think there's a hymn that says that. You know, um, heaven is my home. Hmm, really, that's not right. The earth is our home. Just not yet. There is a day coming when there will be a renewal of all things. Then the earth will be our home when it's renewed back and beyond its original glory. There is no more sea. Why is that? Well, this Again, this is an image, right? This is a picture intended to communicate multifaceted meanings. Uh, the sea in the Old Testament was the the source of, symbolized evil and chaos and destruction and sin. The sea in Revelation 13 is where the beast of the sea came from. This is a renewed earth with no trace of sin. The Lord has wiped it away. All chaos, evil, and sin is gone. There's a people here. This is like a bride adorned for her husband. That's the picture of the church, the bride of Christ in Ephesians 5. So the already is that the church is called the bride of Christ. And the not yet in Revelation 21 is the church, the people of God, are a beautified, completely beautified, 
purified, no more sin, twisting, selfishness, anything, bride of Christ. But in, in Ephesians 5, the church is already called the bride of Christ. So you may, not have, you may have noticed this, but the church is not fully beautified right now. Now, you guys are a handsome group, but there's a radiance coming that we do not yet share. That's, that will be, be made real at the restoration of all things. New city is not fully beautified. Not even close. I get that. Local congregations are not radiant yet. Churches in, in cities, you know, movements, denominations, missional movements, they're not, those churches aren't radiant yet. Church in a geographical region like North America or the West is not radiant yet. The church in the world is not radiant yet. It's got issues. It's not beyond critique. And in the Old Testament, God raised up a number of prophets to bring words of condemnation and judgment and criticism on the church. They had names like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Hosea. It does strike me that today we have a lot of prophets, self-appointed. A lot of people criticize the church. Now, in God's providence, we've been relatively free uh, as a local congregation from criticism from within, at least to, to me, um, but people, there's, there's cottage industries of criticizing the church. Some people do this as a living and, and kind of make, get a following because of it. And it's tempting because the church is always lacking something. We're not fully beautified yet. The, but I want to caution us in this, of engaging in this ourselves or indulging in the delight in it when you hear it from other people. Here's why. The church is the bride of Christ. Incomplete, but still real. Growing up, when my kids were young, they knew there were two ways to die in our home. I'd like to say, that's a hyperbole, please. Um, we had very broad and very clear boundaries with very clear consequences if you got outside of them. And it worked okay for us. One of the boundaries that I think our kids knew that if they crossed, they might die. There, there are two things that could happen. Never tested. Take the Lord's name in vain or or disrespect mom because mom is also my wife. Now, I don't think any, none of them ever did that. Um, I'm not sure what would happen if they did, but the threat was enough. Um, I would tell you this. If, if you came to me, I think many husbands would say this. If you came to me with harsh condemnation and criticism and judgment about my wife, you need to be prepared for a very stern response. The church is the bride of Jesus Christ. We should be very slow to condemn and criticize the church. I don't care if other people are doing it. Now, Jesus, fortunately, is far more patient than I would be. It doesn't change the fact that the church is right now the bride of Christ, in, even though, yes, she's not complete. There's lots of issues. Maybe I would encourage us to think about bringing correction to the church the way we bring correction to our spouse, which, unless you're stupid, is almost never. <laughs> and then you would do it in a way that is kind and gentle. Right? The church is the bride of Christ. It's, there's, a, there's a beauty here, even in this local congregation. Now, it's a flawed beauty. Totally get that. But it's a beauty. What is here is, is also right here in Revelation 21. It's just not beautified yet. But there's a beauty resonant that Christ will, that because of union with Jesus, that he'll restore and bring out. That's true of every church. There's a beauty here. And we can embody that beauty and, and be a foretaste of the coming reality. I've used this illustration many times through the years, but since I first thought of it, I can't not think of it when I think of this passage. 
Okay? And it's this. I remember in 1981, which for some of you, you need to know, that's a year that was in the last millennium. I know some of you are young. You don't know that, that year, it was a year. It really was real. And I remember 1981 going to the theater in Macomb, Illinois, watching on the big screen Indiana Jones and, Ra- Indiana Jones and Raiders of the Lost Ark. I remember that huge boulder rolling right at us in this theater. It was so great. Love Indiana Jones. And then there was Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. It was good. And the Last Crusade was great. Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Yeah, you know. Uh, And then about January of this year, I started to see something. I mean, really, that's over, right? Because Harrison Ford's 80 years old. And so he's not going to make any more movies. But in January, I saw a movie trailer for Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny in movie theaters June 30th, 2023. Like, oh, there's Harrison Ford. I recognize that guy. And there's his office that they keep showing in, you know, his, in, in the archaeology place and, and all this kind of stuff. And I want to see that movie. Now, I don't know if I'll see it at the theater or not because it's kind of pricey now. But why do I want to see Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny? Because since January this year, I have been exposed to trailers about that movie. It's not the full movie. It's a little snippet of the movie. It's not complete. In fact, it's incomplete. They're like a minute and a half long. The movie's probably two hours and 10 or two hours and 20 minutes long. It's just a little fraction, an incomplete picture of that coming reality. But I see it, and it whets my appetite, and I want the full thing. I believe that by the power of the Spirit, even in our frailty, as we as a community say, we want to be a foretaste of coming attractions, We want to embody as we can, even in our limitedness and our finitude, the way it is in heaven on earth. Sometimes the Lord uses that for people to see that and say, I want the whole thing. I want the full reality. That is our calling as as individuals, as families, as friend groups, as a community, to be a foretaste of the coming attractions of the full kingdom of God. Verse 3 And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Here we have presence and people. The chief characteristic of the new future is the presence of God. God himself will dwell with them as their God. Already we experience that. If you're in Christ, the Holy Spirit of the living God dwells in us. And that's why the Holy Spirit is called in Ephesians 1 a down payment. A down payment is a little bit of the fullness that's to come. Back in in Ephesians 1, that's the Holy Spirit's called the down payment, the presence of God of the fullness, the full presence of God that will inhabit and, and, and brighten everything. Some of us have had, like, deep experiences with the presence of God. That's different. I don't know why the Lord looks, works differently in different people's lives. Sometimes that's a relatively normal experience for some. Sometimes it's almost never for some. It's very intoxicating sometimes, and sometimes I understand why. People want to chase after that. I don't think it's the greatest idea. But you kind of know what I'm talking about. Sense of, like, oh, Maybe it's in a deep and dark time. You call out to the Lord and you have a deep assurance like he is with me. Now, whatever the frequency of those experiences now is, the picture here is one day that will be the ongoing, full, robust reality of our life and the restoration of all things. God will himself will dwell with them as their God. And they will be his This is the culmination of this theme in Revelation that every tribe, tongue, language, and nation is brought together to enjoy this dwelling presence of God. And still with their gloriously created distinctives, we can tell their tribes, tongues, languages, and nations, yes. There's ability to discern between peoples, but one overriding, overwhelming reality is they are one people. They are one people. I have more to say about this in the future, but... We should now strive to the best of our ability, though it's failing and finite, to, to pursue that unity in the body of Christ that will be full. I believe that. We should strive for that. 
That's why, Caleb, just pray for the church plant in Irvington, Mercy Hill Church, Pastor Brad McGowan. It's a gospel-centered, Bible-believing church, like, I don't know, probably a, you know, a, a, a three-wood from here. Right? Praise God. That's not competition. That's good. We, we want to see that. We want to pray for this church. And how can we help? Right? This is what we want. We need to break down barriers between God's people. Barriers raised by our culture, whether class, race, style preferences, even denomination. To the extent that we can break down those barriers and work together, we completely should do this. Why? Because it tells the truth about the future. That's why. It tells the truth about the fullness of what Jesus came to do. It tells the truth about what Jesus died to create. It tells the truth about what Jesus is going to bring to this earth. I want to be people of the truth. We, we, it's hard, but we, we pray toward that and work toward that on earth as it is in heaven. Okay, let's look at verse 4. Let's read this together. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. This is a place on the renewed earth that is free from sin and the effects of sin. Sin and brokenness have held this earth in bondage for thousands of years. One day it will be removed and all things will be made new. Part of the reason these things are so painful in our life is that they are intruders. We're not created to deal with this. That's why we can't deal with it. That's why it's so hard. It's, we're not made for that. And notice how we experience the alleviate. I think this is so good. Notice how we experience the alleviation of these things. It's not just that pain is gone, so tears eventually dry up. That's not what it says. This is very tender. At the beginning of verse 4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. He, the Lord, will wipe away every tear. From their eyes. I don't know what this means exactly, but I do know that the, the voice from the throne that's saying this so John can hear is communicating something like, I want you to understand the personal attentiveness of God to your specific pain. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Those tears are generated in this chapter. They're wiped away in the next chapter, but they don't just like wipe away. We don't do it by ourselves. The Lord himself wipes away every tear from the eyes of God's people. To me, that means at least this. There is no suffering here that is not eventually addressed in glory. There is no suffering in this chapter of life that is not eventually, tenderly, personally addressed by God himself to you and to us. It's, it's a very tender statement. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. We're not saying the future is so much better, the, the pain here doesn't matter. Just the opposite. The pain here matters so much that the Lord himself deals with it. That's good news, guys. No tears here are wasted because all of those tears eventually by the Lord himself are wiped away. Further, one way we can be this as a community in our own limited way, failing though it is, is we can attempt to do this for others. We can tell the truth about the future reality that there are no tears by trying to bear one another's burdens. I don't mean the burdens for the whole city or the whole world. That's way beyond me. But I, we, today, in this church, in a covenant community, we can address each other's burdens if they're made known. Verse 5. Let's read this back and forth here. And he who is seated on the throne said, Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega the beginning and the end, to the thirsty I will give from the spring the water of life without 
payment. So there's a presence of God who says, behold, I am making all things new. We are awaiting an announcement of the coming of, the, the, of heaven to earth where God says, I'm doing a new thing now. We are waiting for God to actively act in history. It's not, I don't think the picture is like this gradual brightening event until it's the full uh, light of day. There's, there's an activity of God where he steps into this earth. Now, I do think as the gospel goes out, as Taylor preached about last week, the nations are now undeceived. Satan can't deceive the nations like he used to. And so the gospel has been going out in the world. Every week we pray for the unreached people group of the week. You know what? Every week there's fewer of those. Why? Because the gospel actually is going into all the world. I know in the West, in America, we think everything's just like going on the cusp of everything dying. Like, okay, just open our eyes to the world. The gospel is flourishing in the world. It is going out in the world. It is brightening in the world. But one day, God will say, behold, I am now making all things new, and it will be full-on brightness. We redid our basement Last summer, in one room, I, I rewired the lights and I put a dimmer switch on. So there's like all these LED lights. There's like 30,000 lumens in this one room, right? And, uh, but you can turn it up really slowly, dimmer switch, ever so slowly. A little bit, a little bit, a little bit, a little bit, a little bit. Or you can just boom and pa, all bright. In this age that we're in right now, the dimmer switch is being turned up, if, even if ever so slowly. One day, Christ returns Heaven and earth are joined, and God says, I am making all things new now. I am doing that. I want you to know I am doing that. And the people here, the thirsty, to the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment here. That's a picture of being constantly and eternally nourished by God freely and fully and without cost to us because the source is him. Again, we tasted that now. We tasted the goodness and delight and the freedom of the gospel one day, it's not a taste. It's a real, like we, we wouldn't be able to take it all in. It's so lush. We're going to go to the communion table in a moment. This is a taste in the communion table of the already, but we're tasting it in the not yet. But we look forward to a time where this, this little taste now is a full-on permanent feast. Verse 7. Let's read 7 and 8 together. The one who conquers will have this heritage And I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur. This is the second death. So we have a people in presence again. The one who conquers in the book of Revelation is the one who conquers by trusting in Jesus. It's not conquering like, I have the power, I'm stronger than everybody. It's like, I trust in Christ who conquers on our behalf. Those are the ones who conquer. And with a deep, uh, deep sense of, I will be his God and he will be my son. There's a deep sense of the goodness of the Father and the restoration of all things. And I don't say this, I mean, this is not a criticism of anybody. This is my own background, right? There is a, in our country, the single greatest variable in the likelihood of poverty and crime, there is, it's, it's by far the single greatest variable. It has nothing to do with race. It has nothing to do with gender. It has nothing to do with education level, nor place of birth, nor upbringing, place of upbringing. The single greatest variable in the likelihood of poverty and crime in our country is the answer to this question. Did this person grow up in a home where the father was present? It's not my data. It's U.S. Census Bureau. We're made for fathers. Our culture is reaping the whirlwind of that not being the case. It is largely kept together by heroic, courageous, strong, single moms, like my own mom. We're built for fatherhood. Because we're built for a God who's a father. And even if we do not have that in this earth, it's not a, you know, it's not a 
sentenced to, to crime and poverty, of course. Even if we don't have that in this earth, in the new earth, we have it full on. That's an experience that we cannot deny, we won't want to deny, and it'd be the most, it's the most radiant thing to our senses in the new earth. I, God is my father and I am his son. And by calling the son here is not a sexist comment. It's the, why not sons and daughters? Well, okay, what the, you have to understand the New Testament, when it calls uh, men and women sons, is actually elevating women in that culture to the status of firstborn son who had inheritance rights. It's, a, it's, a, it's, not a, it's, it's actually a, fe- a appropriate feminist move to call men and women sons and saying, you've got the inheritance rights. You have the full access to the father and his full love of the father, which wasn't always the case for women in that culture. What's this last bit about the portion of the lake of fire? Well, again, there's no sea in the new earth. In the restoration of all things, Babylon has been totally removed and all the effects of Babylon. In fact, a lot of these things were what the churches in Revelation 2 and 3 wrestled with. And all these things have been removed now. Now, I realize that many in Christ would say, actually, I was cowardly, faithless, detestable, even a murderer, sexually immoral. I was a sorcerer, idolater, and a liar. Yes, but in Christ, all things are made new. Praise God. That's some of us here. Amen and praise God. Big deal. If you're in Christ, that's all gone. That's no longer the case. What's this saying in the new earth? There's no trace of Babylon anymore. No trace of those things that will allure God's people away to destruction. That's why we talk about walking with Jesus. It's serious business now. It's good because it, it's, it's where we're headed. That's why we talk about church discipline. In, in Jude's, uh, one of the questions Taylor asked him, we talked about the discipline of the church. That is, what is the discipline of the church? It's basically just saying, if you see something in my life, say something. I want to walk with Jesus, not apart from him, because sometimes I'm blind and stupid, and I need somebody to show it to me. That's all discipline is, right? Helping us to be accountable, to encourage us to walk with Jesus, because it tells the truth about the future, the future where there's no hint of Babylon. Verse 9, Then came one of the seven angels who had seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain, and he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. So there's a scene change, which often happens in Revelation. It seems like John's looking from below, and then he's taken to a great high mountain, and he gets the wide-angle version and sees the city coming down. From outside, what is the most clear thing is that it is radiant, filled with the presence of God. Verse 12, it had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates 12 angels, and on the gates the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So keep it. What's the picture here? Twelve tribes, twelve apostles together. This is bringing together the Old Testament and the New Testament people of God, simply telling you that we are part of a very long story. So we can look back and read the Bible and read Genesis and, and 1 Kings and Esther and say, those are our people. Those are our people. That's part of the story that we're in. Verse 15. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, like clear glass. Okay, let me slow down here just for a second. The city in this vision is a cube. <laughs> now, again, this is an image. It's a vision. I don't anticipate the new earth being a city that's actually a cube. Well, maybe, that would be weird, but like this is, it's up to the Lord. But this is a vision communicating symbolic realities. There is another structure in the Bible that is a perfect cube. That is the Holy of Holies in the middle of the temple. 
That was the place where God symbolically dwelled with his people, the place into which the high priest went once a year to make atonement. It was God's burning, fiery presence. Nobody else could go in there because God is so holy and pure and consuming. It would be dangerous for anybody else. It was signified God's presence. Here, the whole city is in the picture of that holy of holies. That God, again, the, the, most, the most obvious thing about the restoration of all things is God's presence with his people. And it's really big. The, the, holy of, the tabernacle, no, sorry, the holy of holies in the temple was 30 feet by 30 feet by 30 feet tall. So that's about, you know, that, maybe 30 feet, that, that ceiling. So it's a pretty big room. In this vision, it's 12,000 stadia length, width, and height. Isn't that amazing? Like, well, I don't don't know what a stadia is. How far is 12,000 stadia? Okay, it's 1,400 miles. Like, why would that be the case? I don't really know, but I think it is interesting. 1,400 miles square was about the size of the Roman Empire at the time. So I wonder if it's the Lord saying, you think you have an empire. Let me show you. But, and it's 1,400 miles high. So for perspective, Earth's atmosphere ends up at 62 miles. So it's really, really big, right? This, the picture is it's massive. God's presence is everywhere and everybody, there's room for everybody in it. That's the picture of what's going on here. Verse 19. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel, the first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysophase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were the twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold. Okay. Uh, a, that's a really big pearl. If the city's 1,400 miles tall with a single gate and a single pearl. Anyway, this is a vision, right? <laughs> you think, why are they so concerned about like all these stones or 12 stones? My goodness, why is this so tedious? We've learned to ask the question, when you see something in Revelation you're not quite sure about, you look in the Old Testament. What you find in the Old Testament is the breastplate of the high priest had these stones on them. It's not just that the the whole earth is full of, full of the glory of God, what's indicated here is that every person has access to the Lord the way the high priest did and more. I said a couple weeks ago, we are, because the end is pictured as a, um, a wedding feast, it's an intensely personal reality. Part of the reason we talk about a personal relationship with God now in the already It's because in the future, it's intensely personal. The Lord knows his people enough to wipe away every tear from your eye and your eye, and he knows they're different tears. And we have complete access to him. Verse 22, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of the sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of the Lord gives light. Its lamp is the Lamb. Okay, remember this is a vision. I'm not sure this means there's no sun in the new cosmos. I don't know. In agrarian society, the sun was the source of life. All this is saying is there's a new source of life. And it's completely clear all the time. We have a new source. Verse 24. By its light, the nations will walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it and its gates will never be shut by, de- by day, and there will be no night there. Okay, we're almost done. Good job hanging in there. Some see this, and I think rightly, as uh, indicative of continuing culture in the new earth, symbolically shown by kings bringing their glory, their goods, their creation of the nations into it. I don't think there will be kings, right? We all reign with Jesus, and he's the only king. But uh, we don't, there's this, there's, there is this connection between our life now and the life to come in some way. Perhaps there's culture, there's work, we don't know. This isn't a sermon about that. But it's not disembodied and completely unknown. Just we can't imagine the goodness of it. The reason the city gates were shut in the ancient Near East, especially at night, was for protection. That's when armies invaded. 
the middle of the night. They just come through the gate. So you shut the gates, you put people on guard, but not this city. There is no more destruction. One day, I mean, some of us may live with fears and lack of security, even though we know it's maybe not rational, it doesn't matter, our thoughts don't ask our permission before they intrude in, one day that'll be gone. One day we will dwell in complete comfort and safety and security. And then finally, verse 27, let's read this together. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Again, this is a place Babylon is gone. The city gates can remain open because no one will enter with thoughts of destruction or wooing God's people away. The, the inclinations to destruction and being lured away in ourselves now will eventually be removed. That is for those whose name is written in the Lamb's book of life. If you go back to Revelation 13 and Revelation 17, we see that the Lamb's Lamb's book of life, in some way I don't understand, it's beyond my human understanding, was written before the foundation of the world. I think to, to communicate to you and I that you're more secure than you think. In fact, before the foundation of the world, you were secured. Your name was written in the Lamb's book of life. But we know something about the Lamb in the Gospels. In the Old Testament, in the Gospels, in the book of Revelation, the lamb was an animal that was sacrificed for his people. The lamb's book of life was life for us and death for him. And he gladly laid down his life that we would be inscribed in the lamb's book of life and be made a bride, a people, a city who will dwell with him as a place the full presence of God and a people. And we're going to the communion table now as a foretaste of that coming reality. We are called now, friends, to be faithful in the already and hopeful for the not yet. Right? We live in this church community on earth right now. It's incomplete. Your city has lots of issues. I know that. I, I probably know it better than anybody. And yet there's a beauty here that the Lord has placed in because of union with Christ and is developing. So we're faithful in the already and hopeful for the not yet when one day all things will be made new. We live in this already as a pre-beautified community. As we take communion together, we're taking communion with a family that is not yet beautified but is on the way because of the work of Jesus. And we're longing for that next chapter. We're anchored in the already as the Spirit of God dwells in his people and leaning into the not yet where God, the dwelling place of God, will be with his people. It's hard to live in the already and wait for the not yet. But Jesus serves us in this. One way he does that is through the communion table. If you're in Christ by faith, I want to invite you to the table. I'm going to pray. And you come and you know that 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 the, the bread and the cup preaches to you. It's like Jesus serving you. He said, I've got you from all of history. The Lamb's Book of Life, written before the foundation of the world. I'm with you right now, and I will be with you when the not yet becomes the already. If you're in Christ, this table is open to you, and we invite you to it.